Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between writer and disabled rights advocate Kia Brown and AWM program director Allison Sansoni. This week, we are thrilled to present a discussion between award-winning poets Ross Gay and Eve L. Ewing, who talked about Gay's recent collection, The Book of Delights. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Welcome both um, of our authors, Ross and Eve, tonight. Ross is going to open this up with a reading. Hey, thanks for coming. It's so good to see you all, and um, thanks for having me. Eve, thanks for coming over here to do this. Um, it's really good to be here. I'm going to read a handful of these. Um, I'm also not yet a member, and this is my first time here. So I'm with, I'm with you all. Yeah. I mean, I'm known about it, but I don't live here. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm going to read to you a handful of these uh, um, little essays. So the way this book happened was that I decided one day I was walking on a, like a flowery path, like an actual fl- path of flowers. And I thought, oh, this is delightful. You know, they're like bees at my ankles and I like bees and kind of stuff like that. And I thought I should write a little essay about this, about this delightful experience. And then I thought, well, it'd be more interesting if I wrote an essay a day about something that delighted me for a year. So that's what this book is. It's, you know, I set myself the task to write an essay every single day for a year about something that delighted me. And I didn't quite get there, but I got a lot. And the book is 102 essays. And this first one I'm going to read is called... <laughs> I'll be a little bit clumsy with, the, with one hand on this thing. So your patience will be delightful. This is called The High Five from Strangers, Etc. Today I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college. A feature of the small town Midwest... A city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book, Public Figures, alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given that beneficent dictatorship of one's own life anyway, is a delight. All new statues must have in their hands flowers or shovels or babies or seedlings or chinchillas. We could go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever guns. I decree it and also decree the removal of the already extant guns. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop, and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. I settled into the coffee shop where, it seemed, every other black person in this town was also hiding, all of them offering, some, offering me some discreet version of the negreeting, took my notebooks out, and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves its own entry, I noticed a white girl. She looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, Pulled my headphones back and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper? Good job to you. High five. (laughs) And you better believe I high five that child (laughs) in her pre-ripped Def Leppard shirt and her teeny tiny Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my largish male and cisgender body. A body that is also largish male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful, are not universal. We all should understand this by now. A few months ago, walking down the street in Umbertide, in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me, and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again? which is a ridiculous thing to say because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. 
He knew this, and hopping out of the truck to dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, smacked my biceps hard twice. I loved him. (laughs) Or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder, forget it if she calls me honey, baby even better. Or someone scooting by puts their hand on my back. The handshake, the hug, I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane and shuffling down the aisle, I saw, sitting at the front of coach, reading a magazine, my great Uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm, and I said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him, who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia. (laughs) Which made me look back at my not-Uncle Earl, who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin 20 years ago. And though it was benign and no one was hurt, it it was a little weird. And they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him. (laughs) And touch him, gently, lovingly, about a thousand miles away. Thank you. This is called Weirdly Untitled. Weirdly Untitled. Yesterday I read poems at the Abraham Heschel School on 60th Street to a group of 70 or so fairly attentive 11th graders. Some were very attentive, budding poets that they were, hanging around to chat with me after the reading. One kid was even so bold as to stick around after the rest of his crew had dispersed to quietly ask, do you ever write stoned? Though I don't, I in no way discourage the child from indulging, which I worried about for a few seconds as I was leaving the school, walking down 60th toward Columbus Circle in a windstorm, hoping I didn't condemn that child to a life of sorrow. (laughs) My favorite of the stragglers, go figure, was the light-skinned, fluffy Afro child with an Africa medallion, straight out of a multi-culti tribe called Quest video. Better yet, straight out of a Jungle Brothers or a De La Soul video. That's it. He was so De La. He also had a Black Panthers pin above his heart on his sweatshirt. He could have been me in 1989 with my Ethiopia pin affixed to my collar, which in Levittown, Pennsylvania, was as much a fly-in-the-buttermilk move as this child's here at Heschel School, but not so much. Given as Heschel marched with King, given as we were in Manhattan, given the long, if complicated, political companionship between blacks and Jews, and Levittown was built as an exclusionary community, a segregated community about 20 miles north of Philadelphia, conceived of almost in anticipation of Brown v. Board of Education, the inauguration of an era of great racist innovation, turns out. My brother's first house in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, had a clause in the title that prohibited it from being sold to a colored person, which he is. Indulge the anachronism. It was in the title. And he seemed to enjoy at least a touch the soiling, the filthing his body in that space was. The filthing, the squadron of filth he calls his family is. Actually, he barely mentioned it. I enjoyed the filthing. I trust you understand with my word choice, I am employing, deploying a kind of harsh irony which works, if it works, because you discern a proximity to a true sentiment, a familiarity with a true sentiment, the sentiment my white mother's grandmother, my family, expressed by wiping her hand on her apron after shaking reluctantly my father's hand, which is by now a cliche based on truth, a truth that occurred, among other places, in Verndale, Minnesota in 1971. As my mother gets older, And in moments of openness, she has begun sharing more of her early life with my father. The family stuff, the this apartment is no longer available stuff, the you have doomed your children, they will be fucked in the head stuff. It is no special doom they have inflicted upon us, turns out. Neither is our head fuck especially special. The other night, I was driving my mother home from the movie Loving about the story behind the Supreme Court case that banned the ban on interracial marriage, which my mom kind of loved and I kind of didn't. That came out wrong. I love the ban. Or I love the ban of the ban. The Supreme Court ruling, I love it. (laughs) I just thought the movie was a two-dimensional reinscription of heteroboringness. She told me my dad, to whom she was married for about 35 years until he died, said to her early on, 
I might be making too much trouble in your life. Maybe we shouldn't do this. But, you know, they did. This is called Tomato On Board. Tomato On Board. I don't think of myself as a particularly great or good even titler, but in this book, I got some good titles. I'm so proud. I think I'm proud. Caution, Bees on Bridge. Kind of neat. I'd read that. (laughs) What you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby. A quiet baby. (laughs) I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty, not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying the tomato onto the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. Have a good day. (laughs) But I quickly realized that one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling. And it only had four of them. So I decided I better just carry it out in the open. And the shower of love began. It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my age-ish and older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted, Bravo! An older couple holding hands both smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I was not giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my friends, Damiano and Moira, who had translated a couple of my poems into Italian and were so, so kind as to let me stay at their place a few nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure he said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched for yards, lounging periodically onto the mossy earth. Its beautiful black bark glistened by the streetlights. Though, translation is an act of love, so my showers needn't be disappointed. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, Nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go out there and stretch out? (laughs) I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm up. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place the way my dad's arm would when he had to break hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of, and one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. Thank you. I'm just going to read you two more, and then, then we'll talk. Is that good? Okay. This one's called Marfa Lights. The Marfa Lights. My buddy Pat and I went to shoot around at the courts, the basketball courts here in Marfa today. We were warming up, shooting 12-footers or doing slow spin moves and crossovers when a young guy from the other side of the court swaggered toward us, holding a ball on his hip, the light gleaming in his earrings, and challenged us to a two-on-two, pointing his thumb to himself and back to his buddy draining threes from the corner. We agreed and went on to kick the shit out of them, 21 to nothing. That's a horrible figure of speech. And I leave it in only to expose the violence we so easily speak. We got more baskets than they did. That they were only 12 years old is irrelevant. (laughs) Given as this was their home court. And they even had a crowd watching. Another little girl who, when one of the kids shouted to the gods, they're kicking our butt, said, I hope so. 
They're grown men. <laughs> That's a totally true story. And the other part of it is that Pat, my buddy, he was like, hey, man, let's let him score. And I was like, no. Because no. <laughs> it was, it was like 18 or 19 to nothing. I was like, I saw that kid making shots. <laughs> they, could, they could go on a run. You know, I'm not new. This is called loitering, and I'll finish with this one. I'm sitting at a cafe in Detroit where in the door window is a sign with the commands, no loitering, no soliciting, stacked like an anvil. I have a fiscal relationship with this establishment, which I developed by buying a coffee and which makes me a patron. And so even though I subtly dozed in the late afternoon sun pouring under the awning, the two bucks spent protects me, at least temporarily, from the designation of loiterer. Though the dozing, if done long enough, or ostentatiously enough, or with enough delight, might transgress me over. Loitering, as you know, means fucking off, or doing jack shit, or jacking off. And given that two of those three terms have sexual connotations, it's no great imaginative leap to know that it is a repressed and repressive, sexual and otherwise, culture, at least, that invented and criminalized the concept. Someone reading this might very well keel over considering loitering a concept and not a fact. Such are the gales of delight. The Webster's definition of loiter reads thus, to stand or wait around idly without apparent purpose and to travel indolently with frequent pauses. <laughs> Among the synonyms for this behavior are linger, loaf, laze, lounge, lollygag, dawdle, Amble, saunter, meander, putter, dilly-dally, and mosey. Any one of these words in the wrong frame of mind might be considered critique or noun epithet. Lollygagger or loafer. Indeed, lollygag was one of the words my mom would use to cajole us while jingling her keys when she was waiting on us, which, judging from the visceral response I had while writing that memory, must have been not quite infrequent. All of these words to me imply having a nice day. They imply having the best day. They also imply being unproductive, which leads to being, even if only temporarily, non-consumptive. And this is a crime in America, and more explicitly criminal depending upon any number of quickly apprehended visual cues. For instance, the darker your skin, the more likely you are to be loitering. Though a Patagonia jacket could do some work to disrupt that perception. A Patagonia jacket, colorful pants, tree-torn sneakers with short socks, an Ivy League ball cap, and a thick book, not the Bible, and you're almost golden. Almost. There is a Venn diagram someone might design, several of them, that will make, our vi make visual our constant internal negotiation towards safety. And like the best comedy, it will make us laugh hard before saying, Lord. It occurs to me that laughter and loitering are kissing cousins, as both bespeak an interruption of production and consumption. And it's probably for this reason that I have been among groups of non-white people laughing hard who have been shushed in a Cadoba in Bloomington, in a bar in Fishtown, in the Harvard Club at Harvard. The shushing perhaps reminds how threatening to the order are our bodies in non-productive, non-consumptive delight. The moment of laughter not only makes consumption impossible, you might choke. But if the laugh is hard enough, if the shit talk is just right, food or drink might fly from your mouth. If not, then this hurts your nose. And if your body is supposed to be one of the consumables, if it has been, if it is one of the consumables around which so many ideas of production and consumption have been structured in this country, well... There you go. There's a Carrie Mae Weems photograph of a woman in what looks to be some kind of textile factory with an angel embroidered to the left breast of her shirt where her heart resides. The woman, like the angel, has her arms splayed wide almost in ecstasy as though to embrace everything. So in the midst of her glee is she. Every time I see that photo, 
After I smile and have a genuine bodily opening on account of witnessing this delight, which is a moment of black delight, I look behind her for the boss. Uh Uh-oh, I think, you're in a moment of non-productive delight. Heads up! Which points to another of the synonyms for loitering, which I almost wrote as delight, taking one's time. For while the previous list of synonyms allude to time, taking one's time makes it kind of plain. For the crime of loitering, the idea of it, is about ownership of one's own time, which must be, sometimes, wrested from the assumed owners of it, who are not you, back to the rightful, who is. And while having interpolated the policing of delight such that I am on the lookout for the overseer, even in photos I have studied hundreds of times, on the lookout always for the policer of delight, my work is studying this kind of glee, being on the lookout for it, and aspiring to it, floating away from the factory as she seems to be. Thank you. Hi. Hi. That was so awesome. Thank you. Can we clap again? That's so great. Um, The angle of these chairs allows us to pretend like it's just me and you having an intimate conversation. But um, I want to take an opportunity to just like kind of publicly give you some thanks. Is that okay? So um, I spend a lot of time on the internet, as some of you may know. And you are like the most, you are the opposite of the internet. Um, in your very being. And so I think that, you know, I think a lot of kind of like performative gratitude happens on the internet. And because you're not there, I maybe don't thank you as much as I should. But I just want to say that um, Ross was um, was and continues to be really important in, in my development as a writer and one is, was one of my kind of um, earliest, most generous supporters of what ultimately became Electric Arches and read a lot of versions of those poems, some of which were really bad and some that just didn't make it into the book. Um, but more broadly, uh, your work really gives me permission to be the writer that I am and gives so many people permission um, to be how we are as writers and so I just wanted to say thank you for that um you're welcome (laughs) and so it's so exciting to talk to you about this book so you were already a pretty delightful person um I'm trying to be like you and like do all these different multiple wordplay things so delight (laughs) you are a delightful person but you're also a delight hyphen f-u-l-l person Mm -hmm. and you I think you were before you began this book but you also said that you say in the book that the the journey of writing helped you strengthen your delight muscle Mm -hmm. um could you talk about that how's your delight muscle doing (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty good you know I'm working um, you know, the thing that I think in that idea of a muscle is interesting to me and someone I was reading somewhere and a, a young, a kid said something like, um, the labor of delight. He said something like, you know, that when you're thinking about this labor and I appreciated that that's what he said, because the, the thing is that, you know, what I'm trying to do is just sort of fill out, fill out the ground of my existence. And I think it's sort of easy to, it's, it's easy, and I think it's also like probably serves a, a function, a negative function, um, to imagine that our lives are not um, as full of tenderness and care and support and love as they are full of violence, as they are full of like you know um, violence, mm-hmm. um, sorrow, etc. So one of the things that, I mean, so yeah, so yeah, I'm constantly sort of like trying to be uh, aware of that. And I also, in the course of writing the book, I sort of came to the realization that, you know, this book is about delight, which, you know, I sort of am, you know, not to like theorize such things, but it feels like it's kind of... Oh, we're going to do a lot. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But it's kind of in the ballpark of joy. Like it's sort of like a a glimmer under the, under the, the ballpark of joy. And... In the course of writing this book, I was like, oh, what I'm really interested in for my work going forward is joy. I want to study, I want to study, study, study what it is, what I think of joy is like the impossible to sever um, fundamental connections between us, you know. And when that gets illuminated, that to me, when that becomes luminous, that to me is like joy, 
you know, these sort of like like awareness of reconciliation, um, reconciliation. This awareness of uh, of interdependence, of connectedness. Um, symbiosis. Symbiosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And we could get into like an or- arboreal uh, metaphor in the, the forest and the mycelium. That's sort of like where I thought I was like, oh, the mycelium communicating, you know, nutrients between trees. That's like that's that thing is joy when you can see like the web that makes us the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of sort of interference to that. And, you know, and my hope is to sort of like be like pointing at that thing, you know. And you're you're really good at that. So I think like, you know, part of the work of the poet in my view is the work of close looking, the work of careful looking and of inviting the trick of the poet is to invite other people to come look with yeah. you. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of poets are really good at inviting people to look at bad things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you are exceptionally good at inviting us to see uh, things that are either ordinary or um, in some cases even bad. Like there's mm-hmm. one part in the book where you're like, I love when I can't carry all my groceries <laughs> in in one trip. I was like, Ross, <laughs> come on, man. You know? And but But I guess I wonder... So you are good at, and I like that metaphor of illuminating. It's like, if I feel like if I could put on Ross glasses, there are things glowing mm-hmm. that other people aren't seeing. Mm-hmm. Have you always been like that? Like, is that something it, just in the trajectory of your life? Have you always been someone who can look for the glowing things or is that something that came with time? Yeah, I think, no, I think it came with time, you know, and I, um, I think I have these words right, but my therapist, I don't know, months ago was like, after some talking, he was like, okay, so you fundamentally don't trust. Hmm. <laughs> that's a, don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's okay for you to tell. If they tell, that's against yeah, yeah, the law, yeah. but you can yeah, tell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, it went, and I was like, I just like finished the book and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, oh yeah, no wonder. I'm like. Don't trust, period. There's no direct object to the book. No, I mean, like, pe- maybe it was people. Maybe it was yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was people. Um, and I was, I was like, uh, so interesting that, that my labor, my practice has been to sort of, you know, that I've chosen this as a, as a, you know, I haven't chosen to write books about how I don't trust people, you know? Um, and so anyway, so yeah, that's all to say that I definitely have a delight radar and, you know, but I, it's work. And do you think that's what, I mean... Now I don't need to like psychoanalyze you, yeah. but do you think that developing that radar is a response to that lack of trust? Probably. Yeah. In part, in part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, among many other things, but I think, I think probably, probably part of it is like, um, you know, like <clears throat> sort of articulating what, or, or pointing to, or like feeling around what is a deep feeling of alienation for any number of reasons. Who knows? Um, we can speculate, but like, sort of being aware of that feeling of alienation and realizing <clears throat> that the feeling is what it is, but the stories behind the feeling are so often fabrications, you know? And so how, how is it possible to sort of, uh, you know, push against that, that feeling, you know? I think, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot. I lost my cell phone the other day. My life got so much fucking better. You know, and I was like, that's right. Because like now that I'm asking questions of like people to get, I was trying to get to the airport at LaGuardia at a rental car. And of course, like, you know, I'd lost my airport and I'm like, LaGuardia is barely an airport at this point. It's just like an outpost. It's a concept. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a concept. It's a suggestion. It's a suggestion. I know. And I thought, you know, if I just say LaGuardia on the things and I print it out, you know, and, and I got out there and I was like, wait, I have to find dollar rent a car. Where the hell is that? And like, no one knows where that is. I was asking everyone. I was like, hey, you know where Dollar Rent a Car is? And everyone's like, yeah, it's over there. It's over there. <laughs> helping me, helping me, helping yeah. me, helping me, helping me, helping me, helping me. You know? And I was just like, all, so many of the sort of tools of efficiency are, um, are actually tools of <laughs> separation. Yeah, and alienation. And I, yeah, and alienation. Yeah. And, and anyway, so part of this delight, uh, uh, attention is about sort of recognizing how alienated we are and wanting deeply to de-alienate. And again, like when I think of joy, I think of joy as like the moments when we realize we are not alienated, you know? 
I think I promise I'll stop with the amateur yeah. psychoanalysis <laughs> in a second, but that actually reminds me of another famous Pennsylvanian who is, of course, Mr. Rogers, right? Oh, because yeah, totally, it, totally. Because it, I mean, I think there's a way in which people can presume an attention towards happiness is yeah. like two dimensional when yeah. in fact, I think in your case and in his case, it's an intentional attempt to respond to this other kind of fundamental alienation that yeah. you're talking or loneliness. Yeah, or, loneliness, totally. Um, Totally. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I just yeah. watched part of that documentary the other night, and I was like, man, I love this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You, well, we could talk. We'll talk yeah. about that later. Okay. Um, so you you had specific rules for this project, which, as you mentioned, you you know didn't totally stick with mm-hmm. the rules, but you had rules. Are you one of those, like, are you, different writers feel different way about discipline yeah. and different aspects of discipline. Where yeah. do you stand? Are you a rules guy? Are you a discipline guy? What role is that in your normal process? Yeah, normally I kind of write, I've had moments where I try to be like, you know, because I've been a coach a lot and I like sports and all that stuff. So I like, I have a thing about that. Um, so I've tried to wake up at 5.30 and do that. And then I'm just like, I'm just tired and kind of miserable. So maybe it's not my thing. Um, for this book, yeah, it was it, it was every day more or less uh, in a half hour, you know. So I had to draft these in a half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of by the, hand, by hand, crucial, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was like it was discipline, but it was kind of like you know a half hour is is not a lot of time, not like two hours or something. Um, normally, I get the feeling, and I have days where I kind of just dive in and <clears throat> let things kind of fall away. And then it sort of like cools off a little bit and then I let stuff go or move to something else. So, yeah, I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not like that normally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, given that I feel like this book is largely, well, it's a lot of things, but one of the things to me it's implicitly about is um, capital, capitalism, labor, efficiency, right? And we heard a lot of that in the passages that you read. Um, So, do you think that that kind of mythos around the writer who performs labor in a certain way, like what do you, what's that about? Like, why uh, do we have that? Yeah. You know, that if it's just like a big kind of mythological part of what people think a writer is and what a writer does. So great. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it is connected to an, an idea of production or productivity that is like a, you know, that makes a saleable thing or that, or, or that even makes a virtuous person, mm-hmm. you know, um, and he ad- I think disciple means like follow, mm-hmm. like the word discipline means to follow, I think. And I, you know, I like, I like, um, the idea of following oneself and that not being structured and that not being violent or punitive. Um, like that's, that's the thing that I very often think of in, when I think of discipline, um, which is why I often say, like I correct myself and say practice, mm-hmm. I say mm-hmm. practice, mm-hmm. um, like everything's a practice, you know? Yeah. And there's also like a lot of assumptions about who a writer is that go into that yeah. and like class. Yeah. And I visited um, Hemingway's house in mm-hmm. Key West mm-hmm. and they're like, this is the room where every day Hemingway got up and went into the room and started writing at 6 a.m. And a person brought him a tray of Bing. food. Yeah. Bing. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you know, who's going to bring exactly. me my tray of food? I know, I know. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a favorite of all of all the delights that you wrote about? Do you have a favorite? Uh, you can pick more than one. If you yeah, I mean, I like that loitering one. I like the sort of thinking that it does, um, and the sort of arrival that that it gets to. Um, there's one in there called "Joy is Such Human Madness," and it's sort of longer. And it and it again, that is a sort of way I'm trying to sort of theorize joy, thinking what joy is. I like that a lot. Um, I had this one about peeing my pants that I really love, you know. <laughs> that's not the peeing in the bottle thing. No, that's, that's a different a good one too. So I mean, much you know, I know that's the thing. It's yeah. like, what's the deal? I, I when I was <laughs> when I was working on these, I went and read some of these to a to a bunch of kids, you know, and and then like about halfway through, I, I was like, do I only write about like the bathroom <laughs> or not having access to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so so funny. I don't know. Yeah, it's just a thing. It's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Etc. Well, the joy, the joy one. You're kind of engaging a Zadie Smith yeah. essay about joy. Yeah. Did you come away feeling like joy and delight are the same thing? No, I came away feeling like like delight is um, delight is. Um, I came away feeling that joy is is the thing. 
You know, joy is the thing. Um, joy is that, that feeling of profound de-alienation that, that is sort of like also what I would say love is. Love is sort of that. Um, delight feels like instances where you're sort of getting tuned up to joy or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? And again, like, I know this is a little bit ridiculous to sort of parse these things out like that. Delight and joy, blah, blah, blah. Except to study joy and delight, I think are valuable. Um, but yeah, so I feel like when I think of delight, I think I'm often being like, yo, look, look, look. You know, right. that. When I think of joy, I think we might be weeping together. It's like profound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I want to push a, a little bit against the idea that like that there's something ridiculous about parsing these yeah. things out. Because I feel like we know, for instance, the difference between agony and sorrow. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Or, I mean, and yeah. I wonder if we're not as attentive, actually, to, to parsing out the differences in those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so speaking of this, I think someone who is not you and not me, uh, but some other person might think that a book of delights means only a book about happy things, right? And this is not that. Um, Do you think that people's definition of delight is too simple or what what is delight? I mean, I want you to go further into that. And there's one part of the book where you kind of play with this, what you call false etymology, right? Delight is like of light or without light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to know what delight is because you wrote this whole book about it. So. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel that you should now. Be yeah, able totally. To yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> funny because by the end of the book, like my friend was like, "Do you know the etymology of delight?" And I was like, "That's the kind of thing I might check into." And it was like a full year of doing this every. I was like, "No, what's it mean? I don't even know what it means." Like I hadn't looked it up, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I sort of feel like. Um, Do you now? I don't. I don't know if I do. God. Maybe now I don't want to know. I know. I know. No one tell us. Yeah, don't say. Don't tell us <laughs> and say. don't look it up right now. Yeah. I think um I like I like that thing the of light and without light. Um because it does feel to me like you're right. Like um and I've heard this and I love it. People are like, you know, oh, I was like oh, a book about the light this so uh, <laughs> Yeah, boo. <laughs> and then of course, like you get I mean, you take two steps in and you're like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, um, the reason that delight is a thing is because there are things that are not delightful. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part of it. You know, the reason, um, delight feels valuable is because there is, um, a concerted, a concerted effort to study what is not delightful. And because there is a lot of what is not delightful, um, so it does feel like, you know, to be, whenever you're sort of attending to a delight, for me anyway, I'm always utterly aware of the non-delight, you know, of what is, what is not delightful. But I do sort of feel like there is this thing about delight, and this is a thing, so I'm theorizing delight. Let's do it. Yes. We're doing okay. it. We're doing it. <laughs> that there is, there is something about, that delight is constantly sort of making us aware of each other, in part because... My first impulse when I have a delight, when I have, when I have something that's delightful, I kind of look around to be like, do you see that? You know? Or I want to like, you know, shove someone and be like, look, look. Or like, share it. I want to share it. Or I want to yell it. Or I want to blah, blah, um, And the other thing is that delight so often is occasioned by things that I see with people. You know? So someone has a beautiful scarf on. Or someone is... Um, like, no, not unusually, is subtly and perfectly normally kind to someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, someone holds the door open Mm -hmm. long, like someone just kind of hangs around waiting, you know. You know the person does the little Those little I don't want to inconvenience you, so I'm going to do this fake run. Exactly. The million on airplanes, I feel like I see it constantly, you know, Mm -hmm. like someone drops something or someone can't reach something or blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So that, you know, delight does feel to me that what is delight? Um, this is a kind of a rounded on the, but delight seems always to make you either reach toward people or it makes you aware of the way that people reach toward each other, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. care for each other, tend for it, tend to each other. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I wonder if there's like um, a compensatory aspect to it because, mm-hmm. in the sense that you're saying you often feel alienated and so therefore you cherish these moments, I think for me and maybe. For some, maybe I'm the only one and I'm an alien, but I think sometimes for me, because I spend a lot of time in social space, yeah. that some of my greatest moments of delight are being alone yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. knowing that yeah, actually yeah, yeah. nobody else is going to, yeah, only yeah. I saw this thing. Yeah, totally. You totally. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. going to keep it. Yeah. Do you have a lot of those too? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, um, I have tons of things where I'm like, ah, oh, that's amazing. And then, the, you know, um, 
I think I'm a little bit like I want to. I want to be like you. Know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's sort of also though. It's part of my aesthetic practice. Mm-hmm. You know, part of my thing is like cataloging that shit. Right. You know, like that's a little you bit. You wrote like a what, whole book. Yeah, I wrote a catalog. Book about yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, but yeah, just the, like noting it, like having the sort of okayness or whatever it is, having the eyes right that at that time you can be like, whoa, that was. That was delightful. So lucky. <laughs> you know, and I think even though the book, as we've sort of started to talk about, it has um, a very... Mul- delight emerges as a multifaceted thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're acknowledging a thing that actually also implies a backdrop of yeah. potentially pain yeah. or yeah. sorrow. Um, nevertheless, you chose to call it the book of delights, right? Yeah. Not like Ross Gay's 102 yeah. great essays yeah. by Ross, <laughs> yeah. you know? So like, what do you see? And that to me is a, a political choice mm-hmm. as well as an aesthetic choice. What do you see as the utility of talking about delight specifically in a time of sorrow? Cause you and I have been talking about delight yeah. for 30 minutes yeah, yeah, and yeah. not like yeah, yeah. North Korea or something. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly I feel like, partly I feel like there is a, like I've said, a sort of, there's a concerted effort to make us feel that we are not capable of caring for each other mm. or loving each other or being tender with each other. The fact of the matter is that we are constantly tender with each other. Like in, in this group, even though you may not have even spoken to each other, there have probably been like a hundred tender, small acts of like kindness in between, you know, someone dropped their pencil and someone picked it up or someone like scooted their chair one way or another or someone said, there's a seat or whatever. Like it is constant, like the subtle tenderness that we are constantly in the midst of is, is constant. I mean, it's, it's just like the ground, it's the ground of our existence, in fact. And for us to, and, and I think there is some, um, there is some, you know, terrible, um, um, a terrible utility to making us think that's not actually the case, you know, um, and so my, you know, so when I, when you say it's, it's a uh, political, I feel like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like the more that we know that our, our thing is to be tender with each other, mm-hmm. that is really big. Yeah. I think that's really, I think yeah. that's really important. It's like, it's subversive. And, um, okay. So let's talk about the political yeah. parts a little bit more. So. There was one of many, uh, lots of times reading the book when I like laughed out loud, I, I was like, oh, del- what a delight. Um, <laughs> but there were a couple really painful moments. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the a really painful moment was um, your dad putting on his uniform to go work at Applebee's mm-hmm. and you saying like, can you just blow it off? Yeah. Just blow it off and come see a movie with me. Yeah. Right. And a short time later, you would find out that he was sick. Yeah. Um, and you said, you said, in honor and love, yeah. I delight in blowing it off, mm, right? Implicitly, mm. in honor and love towards your father yeah. who, who could not, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, talk about the radical work of blowing things off. Mm. Which you should use next time you need an excuse for, like, why you can't come to something. Like, I said, it's radical <laughs> praxis that I don't come to yeah, your birthday yeah. party. <laughs> Um, you know, like I, I think our sort of our obligations and some of those obligations are just that you got to like feed your kids. Like my dad going to work was not like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it was just basic. Um, but it feels like there is a way that, and it kind of connects to the, to the discipline thing or, or the, um, productivity thing. There was a sense of some kind of value in our, um, some kind of value in our capacity, frankly, to sort of be self-punishing, you know, and, and, you know, and like there are like, again, there's the sort of like the need to do what we need to do to sort of care for each other, which means, you know, whatever it means for my dad to like, you know, mom and dad to like get the bills paid. But there are these other sort of things, um, which are like, um, which I think are probably like, you know, if, if there's this, if there's, you know, blowing it off maybe implies if you're able to a faith that there is this other thing besides the value of work, you know, um, or, 
or the value of my status in a kind of uh, market, you know. Blowing it off probably implies that there are things like visiting that are actually more, have more value. And when I say value, I don't only mean like, um, um, I don't mean, I don't only mean like goodness. I mean, actually, I could, you know, like, I don't know a fucking thing about economics, but I want to say. Like a commodity value. Yeah. I mean, like if. If we are, if we are sitting down and we are having dinner, or if there is a, there is a practice of gathering on a block, you know, once a month, you are going to need less stuff. That's a fact. You know, you are not going to have to buy your own sugar all the time. Simple. You know, um, you're going to be able to share your fire, your wood, for your wood stove. Childcare. Yes. Totally. Mm -hmm. It kind of destroys, it kind of destroys things, you know, um, and it makes, it reminds us, of, I think, of this whole other thing. And so in a way, I think blowing it off is turning toward that. Is, you know, like when my dad in the essay, I'm like, man, blow it off. Let's, let's hang yeah, out. Yeah. And there's a sort of practical thing for him is like, I wish I could. Um, but I, I wish we could just visit. He says, believe me. Yeah. I wish I could. That believe was what me. I, was I wish like, I could. Oh, yeah. I'm dying. Yeah. I know. Sad. I know. I know. Yeah. 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 And like this guy who, you know, he was probably dead like seven months later, eight months later. And he wanted to, I never knew that either. That was a thing. Like he was like one of these people and he was just like, like I was nearly 30 years old before he ever like let it be known plainly. Like, yo, this job sucks, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was, he, part of why that actually becomes, in a strange way, a moment of delight is he's revealing something yeah. that has never been, that yeah. he's never revealed before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the other, like, sort of buried thing, you know, it's sweet because I get to talk to my mom all the time about this, and is that he was terribly worried about me, you know, like, you're a flake, dude, you know? Like, one time he literally said, you're going to be a beach bum. I'm like, I, I don't even like the beach that much. Like, you know, because <laughs> he was terrified. Yeah. And, you know, so it just would have been cool to be able to be like, man, let's like, let's not, let's yeah. not, you know, yeah. let's go see Hellboy. Yeah. That's I what I wanted to do. Specifically, it was Hellboy. <laughs> um, so a related question is, um, obviously, I always think everything is about race, but that's because mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but this book is also really about race yeah. in a lot of ways. Uh, in a way that I think is like also subversive, and there will mm-hmm. be people like, Book of Delights! This yeah. sounds easy and great, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the ways I think was, was revealed in one of the things that you read about loitering, mm. and about how even the idea of like indolence mm-hmm. and loitering, those are like very racialized oh, terms, yeah. right? So could you talk about um, Black Delight, which you, you sort of suggested that when you talked about the Carrie Mae Weems photo, but can yeah. you talk more about that? Well, I think one of the things is that, you know, do you know Kevin Kwashi's book, The Sovereignty of Quiet? No. Oh, God. And maybe I'll just talk about his book as a way to sort of talk about that. Um, basically, it's a, it's a book, Kevin Kwashi is his name, Sovereignty of Quiet. And he talks about that um, the way that um, black expression, black aesthetic expression is most often sort of perceived to be um, uh, operating in a mode of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and often if it's not in a mode of resistance, it's actually not black. You know, it's not. Sometimes people are like, well, what is this? And that's like, I mean, an ongoing internal debate in totally. black poetics. Totally. I mean, that's like a, that's a thing that many people still think. Yeah, yeah. And Kwashi, he, he sort of reads all of these different works and gestures um, as, as doing something else. And he's sort of talking about quiet as one of the many other sort of um, modes of not silent. He says, and he sort of, I think it's, he distinguishes between silence and quiet. Mm. I mean, by quiet, he's sort of talking about a kind of interiority, um, a kind of a kind of existence that is not purely determined by um, white supremacy, you know. Um, he's thinking about that, he's basically suggesting that to have our potential for aesthetic, which means lived expression, limited as only fighting against, is not only not true, but also is a racist notion in itself because it's saying you can't do this other thing. You can't, you can't be delightful. You can't be, you can't write about flowers. 
you know? Um, so that's sort of like a way of sort of, you know, part of a way to think, for me, that I think about it. And I think, um, I think often about the mere fact of reading, like reading and writing have been, having been illegal yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. black people yeah. and for our ancestors. Yeah. Um, and I think... Similarly, a gift that you've given me with this book is in the way that reading and writing is inherently subversive and inherently political for black people to do. The fact that like much of the foundation of the prison industrial complex, as we now know it, as actually based on vagrancy laws, loitering laws. Right. So um, so for black people to rest is radical. Right. A counter. That's right. That's right. right. Counter political act. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and to be joyful and to be yeah. like laughing together, you know, like enough of us get Loudly. together and laugh loud together. And what do you call it? A crime. It's a crime. Yeah. yeah. It's illegal, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or it's, it, you know, something has to happen about it, you know? Right. Or it's even, I mean, even in how we deal with children, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a fear of like, don't, totally. don't you know, yeah. I, which I think about every time I see a white child like running. Yeah. Like yeah. doing some yeah, yeah, yeah. free and wild thing yeah. in a public space. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. You know, like, yeah, you get to just do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, my last question before I turn it over to our audience is, um, I'm really debating if you're going to think this is like a really obnoxious question, <laughs> but I have to do it. So, so since I've been reading this book, I've been trying with my delight muscle, uh-huh. right? And I've been trying to look at people like, oh, yeah, your boots, you know, or like, oh, the, like trying really hard. And so I was wondering if there are, as as we all try to get better at this, if there are um, delights that you see in, in the room right now that you can help us, can you help, can you point to them and help us? Oh, uh, well, I mean, of course, like people banging on these kids, banging on the typewriters, it's just so great. You know, I love that. And the typewriters are so great. And the um, the noise that was happening this whole time is so yeah, great. It's like there's some conversation happening over yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, I can go on and on. There's a little stain here that I find delightful. <laughs> I don't know. That was pretty <laughs> good. In the back, she's like, oh. <laughs> I that like- means someone was having coffee here. That's so good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, sign it's a sign that a person was here yes. and that they were messy in a moment totally. and that something didn't go as it was planned. I'm trying to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's so good. Enough. You're good. You're a pro. So good. I also really like these lighting fixtures, which are oh, yeah. all different colors. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. And look like circles cut in half. They're amazing. Um, okay, good. That was at least like four. Um, there's a child in the front whose shirt says Happy Camper. I know. And I, I know, like that I know, I at least two people brought their children to yeah. a poetry event. Yeah, that gives I know. me I delight. Know. Now the children are both really embarrassed, which also <laughs> also gives me delight, ironically. Um, so this is great. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, with that, could we say thank you to Ross? And thank Dave. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation between writer Tiari Jones and bookless editor Donna Seaman about Jones's book, An American Marriage, which was an Oprah's book club selection. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.